there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. My talk is on contentment. Philippians 4, 11 and 12. Remember that Paul is in prison and probably a terribly messy, perhaps very cold, rat-infested, cockroach-infested place. And scholars tell us that he was probably chained on both sides. Two soldiers were chained to him 24 hours a day. And it couldn't have been anything that we would call comfortable. But it was in those circumstances that he says in Philippians 4.11, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I think you and I would feel very desperately that we were in need if we were in a situation like that. God knows I need to get out of here, we would be telling him. But we need to learn the lesson that Paul learned, to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, Paul says, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, do you think that that is just limited to the Apostle Paul because he was such a great spiritual giant? No, I don't think so. I think that is exactly what God wants you and me to learn. It's taken me too long to learn that, and God knows how much longer it may take me, but little by little, he certainly has been training me along these lines, and I am so very grateful. I told you a little bit this morning about what it was like living with the Alka Indians, and there were a good many things which were not comfortable for me and not to my taste, but I look back and think of that as one of those very significant times when God was dealing with me in what seemed at the time uh, rather severe disciplines, and I'm very grateful for that. I think of dear Mrs. Kershaw that I told you about this morning, and she was certainly an icon of contentment. She never stopped smiling, and in spite of the fact that she couldn't hear a word that any of us said unless we were close enough for her to use the little microphone, she sat at our dinner table. She was always there for lunch and supper. She went back to her very empty house for the night and for breakfast, but she would sit at our table and just smile. She didn't have any idea what the conversation was that was going on, and every now and then she'd come out with something totally unrelated to anything that anybody else had said, <laughs> and yet she would always be smiling, realizing that she'd probably said something that didn't have anything to do with what we were talking about, but just such an icon of contentment. And for her, God was enough. We never heard her complain about anything at all. And mind you, she was at least several years older than I am now, and she used to go upstairs and talk to my step-grandmother, who was a rather crotchety old lady. Uh, she was my mother's stepmother, and mother was always begging us children to please go up and talk to Nana for a little while. 
we didn't want to talk to Nana because we never could think of anything to say. And we, mother would always say, just tell her what you did today. Tell her about school. Just go and talk to her. But mother didn't have to say that to Mrs. Kershaw. Mrs. Kershaw would get up, go up and talk to my step-grandmother, who also was deaf. <laughs> I mean, really deaf. Now, can you imagine? The, it was like ships passing in the night. There was one time when we had a, a visitor from Belgium whose name was Victorine. And Mrs. Kershaw was determined to find out what this lady's name was. And this lady was in the kitchen, and Mrs. Kershaw said, what is your name? This lady really didn't speak English. She spoke French. So whatever she said, none of us were around to hear, I guess, at that moment. But Mrs. Kershaw wouldn't give up. She just kept saying, what is your name? And finally, this, this French lady, French-speaking lady, said, Victorine. And Mrs. Kershaw said, oh, Frida, that's a nice name. <laughs> My father was in his study nearby, and he leaped from his chair. <laughs> to rush out and sort of th sort things out. He couldn't take it any longer when he heard <laughs> Frida, that's a nice name. <laughs> but Mrs. Kershaw could just laugh about something like that. You know, she just was so sweet and so contented. God was enough. And it says in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything. Now that is a command, ladies and gentlemen. That is not a suggestion. Do not be anxious about anything. Well, how am I supposed to not be anxious about anything? By getting down on your knees and say, Lord, here's my anxiety. I'm going to give it to you. And he knows how to handle that. It is a simple gesture, but I, being very much of the earth earthy, I need all the help I can get. And so it does help me physically, when possible, to get down on my knees and just put whatever my anxiety may be about in my hands and literally lift them, lift them up to the Lord and say, Lord, here is this anxiety. I can't handle it, but you can. And I'm going to give it to you, and I'm not going to retrieve it. And I think the first time that the Lord brought that gesture to mind was the early morning when I was staying with my daughter and her husband. She had four children at that time. And there was a knock on my bedroom door at 5 o'clock in the morning, and the two of them came in to announce that they were expecting number 5. And my heart just sank. Not because I objected at all to my daughter having 15 or 20 children, if the Lord wanted to give them to her, but it just seemed to me a little bit too soon after number 4. And my heart sank, although I didn't say anything nasty at the time, but I felt like saying to my son-in-law, couldn't you sleep in the backyard for a few years? <laughs> And after they left the room, of course, I was smitten to the heart with how nasty that thought was, <laughs> because it was absolutely none of my business. And any of you mothers-in-law take a word from me. It is none of our business what our children and our in-laws do with their lives. We can pray as hard as we want to, but we are not to be interfering with matters that are not of any of our business. And so it was then, I think, that 
the Lord just prompted me to get down on my knees and lift up my feelings and what nasty thoughts I had had and just said, Lord, I can't handle this. You can, and so I'm going to give it to you. And the Lord did give me peace. And then, of course, when number six was coming along and then when number seven, <laughs> number eight, it had already been dealt with way back then. I didn't need to deal with it again. And I, don't, I can't remember the things which I said today and what I might have said to somebody yesterday, but um, just very recently, I was talking with a 95-year-old lady who asked me how Valerie was, and I said, well, she's fine. And I said, you know, she has eight children. And this lady said, how did that happen? <laughs> and I said, in the usual way. <laughs> Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, not in everything by argument, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now that is a discipline, isn't it? It is a discipline to be contented with what God has assigned. So now we get the three points. Number one is contentment cannot dwell with anger. The question of anger came up this morning, and because it is a question that it comes so often to my radio, through my radio listeners, I've had to draw up a number of papers on these topics which are repeated again and again and again so that I don't have to keep rewriting them. I just punch them into my computer. And this is what I wrote about anger at God because it does seem to be a very prevalent thing. One lady wrote, my faith has been challenged. There has been bitterness in my heart toward God. I have been angry at him for withholding this blessing from me. The mail brings me very many variations on this theme. I'm often asked if I have ever been bitter or angry toward God because he took from me two much-loved husbands. Unless my memory completely forsakes me, I believe I can honestly answer no. Our adversary, the devil, has tempted me in many ways, but I don't think that anger at God is one of them. I'll try to explain why. And I have five reasons here that I was able to think of as to why. Number one, God is my heavenly Father. He loves me with an everlasting love. The proof of that is the cross. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is that Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. And as the hymn says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Secondly, our Heavenly Father wants nothing but the best for any of us. And only he knows what that best is. For he is the all-wise, the omniscient. Even an earthly father wants the best for his child, but he doesn't always know what that is. Number three, God knows not only what we need, but when we need it. We can be banging away at God's door for something that we're convinced that we need, but if we don't have it now, it's because we don't need it now. If God knows we need it, then it will come in God's time. When he withholds from us the one thing we feel sure would make us happy, 
It's well to remember his promise that he will meet all our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. In other words, if we don't have it, we don't need it now. Perhaps he will give it next week, but that does not indicate indifference, forgetfulness, or poor timing. His timing is always perfect. Number four is resentment makes us vulnerable to Satan, who is also the destroyer. Think what a dangerous position we put ourselves in if we are angry with God. Is there anywhere else for us to turn? In heaven or on earth, there is no other refuge. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. He's got the whole world in his hands. Do we dare reject such a refuge? And number five, we have only this present moment. There's not a one of us that knows that we're going to go out of here alive. We don't know that, do we? God does not usually give us previews of coming attractions. But I can look back over many decades, remembering how worried I sometimes was, how bewildered at things that God had permitted to happen. But now I can see them all as a golden chain of mercies, gifts from a merciful father who, like the father Jesus described, would never give his son a snake if he asked for a fish. What looks to us like a good thing might actually ruin us. How thankful I am for God's withholdings, for his unfailing faithfulness. Now, as I look forward to what may be left of my future, I think of Whittier's lines. I know not where his islands lift their fronded palms in air. I only know I cannot drift beyond his love and care. I don't want to miss the island, those islands whose beauty I never dreamed of in those anxious times. I want to be able honestly to say, Father, I trust you. Forgive me for being so foolish as to imagine that you have made a mistake. Help me to receive grace to keep a quiet heart, sure that I am in this very moment in the everlasting arms. Contentment cannot dwell with anger. So if you are aware before the face of God that you are still filled with anger or bitterness, just mark my words, you won't be able to find contentment until you deal with that sin. Is anger in itself an evil thing? Now, this is a good question. The answer, of course, is no because we know that Jesus was angry on a number of occasions, angry with the uh, money changers in the temple, angry with the Pharisees at times. It is anger occurring in people who are sinners that easily and quickly becomes evil. The Bible says, be angry, but sin not. It's a good war, one man named S.M. Hutchins wrote, it's a good war, and by God's grace, I am winning it. No man had a greater right to be angry with me and the whole human race than did our Lord on the cross. He would have been perfectly justified in calling out a couple of the larger caliber angels to destroy the world. But he looked down upon us and asked his father to forgive us. 
Second point, contentment cannot dwell with self-pity. Contentment cannot dwell with self-pity. And ladies, I don't think I can say strongly enough what a satanic thing self-pity is. To feel sorry for ourselves, to feel as though we ought to be surrounded and propped up and hovered over and specially loved. When Jesus did what he did for us, is some kind of strange arrogance. But I know that self-pity is satanic because the Bible makes it very clear. You remember the story of when Jesus was with the disciples and he had made it very clear to them that he was going up to Jerusalem and he was going to be killed. And there is a prophetic word in Isaiah uh, that Jesus had, he had set his face like a flint. It's Isaiah 50, I believe. The Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And so Jesus is moving one step at a time from point A to point B to point C to point D, accompanied by his disciples, teaching them, praying with them and for them, showing them the way of the cross. And he's on his way up to Jerusalem where he says he is to suffer many things at the hands of the Pharisees and he is going to be killed. And Peter says just what you and I probably would have said, and I can imagine him sort of grabbing Jesus by the arm. And he said, no, Lord, this must never happen to you. And do you remember Jesus' response? He turned in anger to Peter, and he said, get behind me, Satan. You do not think as God does. You think as men do. It's very easy for us to do the same thing, isn't it? Especially when it comes to the Lord we love. We don't want him to have to suffer. Well, he did suffer, and he planned to suffer, and he still suffers in you and me. But he was determined that his face was set like a flint, and he was going to go to Jerusalem no matter what the case, what the trouble. And so when we begin sinking into a swamp of self-pity, and feeling sorry for ourselves. A red flag ought to go up. We ought to realize how dangerous a position we have put ourselves into. What can we do when we're suddenly aware of pitying ourselves? Same thing I've been saying all morning. Get down on your knees and say, Lord, here's this self-pity. I can't help it, but I am going to give it to you. That much I can do. And Lord, I pray that you will transform my heart in order to enable me to accept what is happening that makes me so prone to feel sorry for myself. I went to a boarding school, as I think I mentioned, in Florida, and the headmistress of that boarding school was a redoubtable woman. She was taller than I am, weighed probably 90 pounds more than I do. And when she came sailing into a room, it was like a galleon in full sail. And if you were to ask me what was my relationship like with Mrs. DuBose, I would have to say it was one of abject terror. Because she usually had corrections that she needed to make in, our, in us students. And I knew full well, having had the kind of background that I had, that she was right. 
She was training us, she was teaching us, and she was constantly after us about feeling sorry for ourselves and how awful that was. When Jesus was on his way to the road, on his way to Jerusalem, he said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Do you want to lose your life or do you want to save your life? It's human nature to want to save ourselves, isn't it? And I don't think we get over that easily, if any time at all, until we see the Lord face to face. But it is one of those disciplines that God wants us to be serious about. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And I'm sure we can think of a good many illustrations of those who have been willing to lose their lives for Christ. And the statistics that I have heard most recently are that there are 400 martyrs per day who are being killed. 400 per day. And there have been more martyrs in the last 50 years than in all the previous years since Christ came to earth. What do we know about sacrifice in this country? We are so namby-pamby, aren't we? We love fun, and we love comfort, and we want to be surrounded and hovered over and sought out. Well, I can imagine some of you getting pretty angry with me and going out of here and saying, well, that woman, you know, she's, she's just way too tough for me. Where do you think I get this stuff? It's in the book. It's in the book. Every single thing I want to give to you, I try to back up with the scripture. Don't suppose for a moment that I was born with this attitude at all. Not by a long shot. And I'm still working at it. I think if I had become as pure a soul as Jim Elliot must have been at the age of 28, the Lord might have allowed me to die at the age of 28. But as you can well see, I'm a long way from that. <laughs> When I look in the mirror in the morning, I honestly don't, re I don't recognize the face that I see there. I try to do something with it every now and then, but it's a lost cause. <laughs> whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. So let's get rid of self-pity. Let's not go rushing off to cry on somebody else's shoulder until you have done what ought to be done first, at least. And you may find that it's not necessary to do anything more if you've gone to the foot of the cross. Depression is one of the results of self-pity. I don't know which comes first. Sometimes depression leads to self-pity and probably self-pity leads to depression. But when it's clinical depression, of course, it's way out of my field. I don't find anything about clinical depression here. I just assume that depression is depression, whatever label you give to it. But I love some of these wonderful letters that I receive. And this is one from my radio listeners, which I felt would bear reading to you today. This woman writes to say, I fell into despair and the lie of severe depression. 
I went from one psychiatric hospital to another, running from God and living in sin. He taught me the concept of doing the next thing. Interesting, isn't it? I had never heard you share that before. What God taught me is to use my work, my duties, my responsibilities as a means of controlling my thought life. Listen to that now. Use your work, your duties, and your responsibilities as a means of controlling your thought life. The seat of the emotions and the will is right where Satan attacks the hardest, she says. So God would teach me to just get out of bed. Don't just lie there and decide if you feel like getting out of bed. Don't lie there and assess what you have to do today and then decide what you feel like doing today. He told me to just get up and get going. I love what Oswald Chambers says about people who find it difficult to get up in the morning. And of course, Oswald Chambers and all the rest of them back then had never heard of morning persons and <laughs> after evening persons. You know, this is another one of these excuses that we dream up for ourselves and then suddenly becomes a watchword. Well, Oswald Chambers says, get up first and think about it later. <laughs> Very good advice. So don't lie there and assess what you have to do today and then decide what you feel like doing. He told me to just get up and get going. Oh, what a lie depression can be and what bondage it brings to its captives. So I would just get up and go through the motions sometimes. What a consolation obedience can bring. And I am convinced that there is no consolation like obedience. It is wonderful how God can console us just through his Holy Spirit and his love and his word so that we don't need to be rushing around taking other people's precious time to find what we would call human consolation. She says, little did I realize what I know today. I was overcoming the despair by merely obeying the voice of God. I told my feelings to stay in bed. I was getting up and God was going to meet me in my duties and he always did, you know. It has been nine years now since I have taken any medication or silly psychobabble type counseling. And then she goes on to talk about the example of Ezekiel. And that's a very obscure passage in the book of Ezekiel, which I haven't heard preached on. Uh, probably Tim Keller is one of those that would know all about it because he preaches right through the Bible. I know that. But the Lord spoke to Ezekiel and he said, I am going to take away at a stroke the light of your life. And Ezekiel writes in his book, and in the evening my wife died. And in the morning I did as I was commanded. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord just comes down with this tremendous statement. I am going to take away at a stroke the light of your life. And Ezekiel did the next thing, whatever it was, until he went to bed that night. And he said, in the morning, I did as I was commanded. In the evening, the Lord took his wife. In the morning, he got up and did what he was supposed to do. And I had a lovely letter from a friend of mine, a young girl, who, with her sister, had sat all night in the vigil waiting for their mother to die. She was very, very close to death. And she died about 3 o'clock in the morning. 
And my friend Terry wrote me this lovely letter, and she, she wrote to thank me for telling her about doing the next thing, because she said, I just want you to know what I did. She said, after Mother died, and of course the funeral people had come and taken the body away, and she said, that morning I opened all the windows, let the sunshine come in, replaced all the flowers in the room with fresh flowers, took the sheets and the towels and the bedding off, put it in the laundry, and put on fresh sheets and fixed the whole room up just as beautiful as the way Mother always had it. And she just was writing this very simple letter to me to say thank you because doing the next thing was what enabled me to get through what would be otherwise an opportunity to sink into self-pity. It works. And this same lady who wrote the letter that I've been reading, she said, he can train us as to what is really the problem when we are so clouded by despair and feelings. He can train us. So I do thank God for those who get the message that God, that contentment cannot dwell with self-pity. This woman was liberated from bondage. Her letter ended with glory, hallelujah. And she said, I'm learning how to die. What did I tell you this morning about Margaret Jensen's daughter? Mom, Mom, I'm just going to die. Well, iron while you die. Don't forget it. You know, there may be, there will be a next thing for you to do, whatever that might be. And God is going to enable you to do it. Relinquish, let go. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Now, the Apostle Paul could not possibly have been able to make himself available to other people to win as many as possible, to become a slave, if he had not already dealt with the self-pity, which was such a temptation, I'm sure. He was always reaching out to other people. What can I do for them? And no matter how bad you may feel and what desperate word you may just have received from your doctor or somebody else, be assured there's somebody worse off than you are. Just think of the sick and the elderly and the crippled and all the rest of them in those long strings of refugees that we saw on the TV. They were sick, and yet they, here they were refugees. So it's one thing piled on top of another, which very likely is worth worse than anything we have actually experienced. But never let's suppose that there's anything unique about our particular kind of suffering. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And I don't think there's going to be any spiritual burnout if we act in that way. Now there's a sense in which we should be willing to be burnt out and the great a missionary to Burma, uh, Henry Martin, I think his name was. Uh, I think it was he who said, Lord, let me burn out for thee. And Jim Elliot had written in his journal, have my blood, Lord, have it all. Let it be poured out for the life of the world. On another page, he wrote, I don't ask for a long life, but for a full one like yours, Lord Jesus. And Jim died at 28. Jesus died, we suppose, in his very early 30s. 
And I have another little gem for today, today's reading. Now this is the 24th, isn't it? This is the reading that I had for this talk. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then this poem by Elizabeth Charles, is thy cruise of comfort wasting? Rise and share it with another. And through all the years of famine, it shall serve thee and thy brother. Is thy burden hard and heavy? Do thy steps drag heavily? Help to bear thy brother's burden. God will bear both it and thee. However perplexed you may at any hour become about some question of truth, one refuge and resource is always at hand. You can do something for someone besides yourself. And when your own burden is heaviest, you can always lighten a little some other burden. There is no time when you cannot give help. There is no time when you cannot give help. And in one of Charles Spurgeon's sermons, he tells about a woman who was in, in bed for 20 years. He says, one thing I am sure of, that the more we have of this, the more useful we shall assuredly become. And the this that he's referring to is giving thanks for everything. Nothing has had a greater effect among the minds of thoughtless men than the continued thankfulness of true Christians. There are sick beds which have been more fruitful in conversations than pulpits. I have known women confined to their chambers by the space of 20 years together, whose remarkable cheerfulness of spirit has been the talk of the entire district. And many there have been called who have Many there have been who have called to see poor Sarah in her cottage, knowing that she has scarce been a single day without distressing pain, and have heard her voice and looked into that dear smiling face and have learned the reality of godliness. The bedridden saint has been a power throughout all the district, and many have turned to God saying, what is this which enables this Christian to give thanks always to God. Well, part of the answer to that question, what is it that enables one person to give thanks to God, even when they're in the midst of deep sorrow and suffering, is a willingness to give thanks to God, a deliberate choice to give thanks to God. God works with us, you know, but he doesn't always do it for us. And he wants us to learn to live in company with him so that we will be in a position to offer blessing and grace to other people, no matter what deep sorrow we may find ourselves in. Beloved, our crusty tempers and our sour faces will never be evangelists. They may become messengers of Satan, but they will never become helpers of the gospel. To labor to make other people happy is one of the grand things a Christian should always try to do. There are better people in the world than you have dreamed of, sir. And when you are better, you will find them out. If you were always grateful to God, you would thank him that people are as good as they are. 
if you would be thankful when you meet even with bad people, thankful that they are not worse than they are, and try to get hold of the best points in them and not their worst points, you would be much more likely to gain your purpose if your purpose is to glorify God by doing them good. And now we have the third point, which is obedience brings contentment and peace. Number one, under talk number two, contentment is cannot dwell, cannot dwell with anger. Number two, cannot dwell with self-pity. And number three, obedience brings contentment and peace. Do you love Jesus? There are a lot of songs about how much we love Jesus. And you know, it's very easy to sing about how much we love Jesus. It's not too difficult to write a poem about how much we love Jesus. We can pray about how much we love him. But Jesus didn't ask us to sing and pray and write poetry about loving him. He said, if you love me, do what I say. Do what I say. That is the only valid test of the reality of our commitment to Jesus Christ. Obedience. My father gave a memorable lesson to my little brother, Tom. When Tommy was a little boy, about three years old, he was allowed to take the brown paper bags out of the bottom drawer in the kitchen where my mother always stored them. And he was allowed to put them all over the kitchen floor. And he's always been very methodical as all everybody in our family has been, you know, we're a bunch of hung up people. <laughs> And any psychiatrist would have a field day with the Howard family because every, every one of us likes things in straight lines and we want everything to be neat and the top of the counters practically empty. And so mother said, Tommy, you may play with the paper bags on one condition. Put them back in the drawer when you're finished. Mother came into the kitchen one day and the paper bags were very neatly spread out all over the kitchen floor, but Tommy wasn't there. She went into the living room, found that my father was playing the piano, and Tommy was standing there seraphically smiling. And she said, Tommy, I want you to come and put away the paper bags in the kitchen. And Tommy looked up at her with these gorgeous navy blue eyes that he has with long black lashes. I mean, just a charming child. And with sweetness, he said to mother, but I want to sing Jesus Loves Me. <laughs> My father was playing the piano, and of course he stopped and pressed home a very necessary lesson, that it's no good singing the praises of God while you're being disobedient to your mother. Now see, that's where the rubber meets the road. Obedience brings contentment. Now, do you love him? What do you do about it? Obey. That's the proof of my love for Jesus. And back to the passage in 2 Corinthians 4, which was so wonderfully alive to me when I lived in that strange place with the Alka Indians in my hammock with no walls and no floors, no privacy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay Let's never remember, never, never forget that we are nothing but clay pots. 
and a good many of us are cracked pots, too. <laughs> Paul said we had this treasure in jars of clay, the treasure being the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he says, it's not this surpassing power is not from us, but from God. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be manifest or may be visible in this mortal body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So when you go out of here, remember that you are being given over to death. It is a continual lifetime process. Deaths in many different ways, but it's for the glory of God. It's in order that he might resurrect you into a shining Christian like Mrs. Kershaw, like that woman who's in bed for 20 years and brings joy to everybody that comes in. And you can name any number of other people like that. We are being given over to death so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us and life in you. Are you willing to die in order to bring life to other people? I love the hymn Beneath the Cross of Jesus. One stanza that's usually left out of most of the hymn books is, O oh, safe and happy shelter, O oh, refuge tried and sweet, O oh, trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. As to the holy patriarch, referring there, I believe, to Jacob and his dream, a wondrous dream was given, so seems my Savior's cross to me, a ladder up to heaven. It is a happy shelter this cross, which was the symbol of terrible torture, was the instrument of torture. But Jesus Christ's death on that cross has completely transformed it into a safe and happy shelter, a refuge, tried and sweet. And there's a lovely hymn, which the older I get, the more I use it. I don't know what's going to happen. I've had to see a doctor a couple of times lately, and it's very scary. And I go back to this hymn, in, heaven, in heavenly love abiding, no change my heart can fear. And safe is such confiding, for nothing changes here. The storm may rage about me, my heart may low be laid, but God is round about me, nor can I be dismayed. Wherever he may guide me, no want shall turn me back. My shepherd is beside me, and nothing can I lack. His wisdom ever waketh, his sight is never dim. He knows the way he taketh, and I will walk with him. Green pastures are before me, which yet I have not seen. Bright skies will soon be o'er me where the dark clouds have been. My hope I cannot measure. My path of life is free. My Savior has my treasure, and he will walk with me. God bless you.
I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.